How's it going, man? Bro, things are going real well for me. Yeah, how so? Oh, I just uh, moved into this baller new apartment. Got a couple of friends in the complex, and dude, there's all sorts of cool stuff within walking distance, so it's pretty sweet. <laughs> Finally, a uh, city slicker again, huh? And Mama Heathen shipped me some of her famous homemade cooking earlier, and I just had some of that for dinner, and I've had a couple of these. So you're feeling good. So I'm feeling good. Well, that all sounds great and dandy. Just don't slip into too hedonistic a lifestyle in your new bachelor pad. Why not? Why Why not? Why not? <laughs> because hedonism is not something to praise. <sighs> but I guess that's my fault. I should have expected you to be a hedonist. Really should have picked up on that. A heathenist? <laughs> a hedonist. <laughs> Though maybe heathen and hedon go together. Yeah. It would be my pleasure to explore this with you. I feel like I don't have a choice. Nonsense. Jean-Paul Sartre says we always have a choice. Isn't he the one that said you could kill yourself so if you're doing something you don't want to do, you actually are still choosing to do it? Yeah, exactly. There's always a choice. Yeah, you're both the worst. <laughs> don't be Aristotle by your Plato knowledge cause we got our game I like. We'll Vinny, Vitty, Vici, and Mustache, Yonichi, and we'll never miss the marks, cause I'm awesome, he's heathen, and this is our podcast show. So today's topic is hedonism. Yes, on our show, which is called Wholesome and Heathen. I'm heathen, and he's wholesome. Oh, did you want me to do a show intro? Yes, please. Welcome back, dear listener. It's our pleasure to introduce you to philosophical ideas that are oh so important and life-changing, mind-blowing even. But our specialty is to rip away the academic jargon and make it relatable to you through pop culture. Welcome to our show. Speaking of pleasure, that is the very core of hedonism. Pleasure. Yeah, but... Excessive, right? Like, there's a difference between the layperson enjoying a fresh-squeezed glass of orange juice and the drug-fueled orgies that I imagine your friends have for fun. Okay, I'm gonna stop you there. I know you say it as an insult, <laughs> but I gotta say, if my friends are having drug-fueled orgies, that sounds way more fun than your friends who are, what, <laughs> sipping some OJ for entertainment? <laughs> How lame! Excuse you, I'll have you know, orange juice is known the world over for being the nectar of the gods. This episode is sponsored by Tropicana. I actually prefer Floaters Natural and Simply Orange is top-notch too. Good memory from when we were roommates that Tropicana is what I usually got since they had the biggest containers. But no, no, we're we're not sponsored. That was that was a lot of information. <laughs> but I think what you meant to say is we're not sponsored yet. Big Orange Juice, if you're somehow listening to this, reach out to us, because clearly we've got a passionate <laughs> follower over here. Oh, man. What what were we talking about? I think you were talking about your perverted friends or something. Oh, yeah. No, nice try. But no, I, I think you were trying to <laughs> trick me into hedonism. All right. All right. Let's get serious. Always a good place to start. Let's define or... uh. I was going to say orgies. I meant hedonism. <laughs> Depending on which one you define, I'm going to bleep you out. <laughs> okay. What do you think hedonism is? A lot of people find drinking to be fun, and most everyone thinks carnal pleasures are a good time, and some people do drugs because they're chasing that high, which I'm sure feels great, but that's exactly it. Hedonism is chasing pleasure without caring about the cost. Once the druggie comes down from his high, 
Life isn't so great anymore. Seeking pleasure while being destructive. That's what you're saying? Yeah, it might be fun in the short term, but it's not sustainable. It's destructive. There are all sorts of breakdowns in the concept known as hedonism. There's psychological hedonism, normative hedonism, axiological hedonism, if you really want to get academic. But what you're describing, my friend, is the colloquial definition of hedonism. And it is a massive disservice to this great theory. Are you basically saying that you're not wrong, the world is wrong? Precisely, young grasshopper. Now pipe down and let me teach. <laughs> sure thing, oh, oh, wise one. The core of hedonism is pleasure. There's no denying that. Hedonism is pleasure-seeking, that's a fact. But the confusion comes in with understanding what we mean by the word pleasure. Not drunken orgies. I feel like you're just obsessed with orgies. Whoa, hey, no, nah, that's your debaucherous domain. See, most people hear pleasure and think purely of sensory pleasures, like delicious food or sex or a drug high. And then they think hedonism advocates chasing that stuff to excess, which is gluttony and lust and a bunch of the other seven deadly sins. But that's entirely wrong. It's slander. It's a smearing of the good name of hedonism, I say. But but how is it wrong? Pleasure automatically makes you think of excess and gluttons with their fingers sticky and just a general caricature of, like, a fat, uncaring king. Don't you take pleasure in a lazy weekend morning, enjoying watching the steam rise from your cup of coffee, and knowing there's nothing pressing you need to attend to? Don't you uh, drive pleasure from a delicious meal shared with some friends? Nothing spectacular, just an intimate group and good friends. Or or how about hanging out with a baby or a toddler and, you know, just like laughing together? <laughs> Only for a limited time with the baby. It can easily become a drag if you're actually taking care of it. Or going for a walk without a purpose, just ambling around and taking in the fresh air. Aren't there a million and one things in life that bring us pleasure? But is that the kind of stuff hedonism is actually talking about? It can be a pleasure to make someone's acquaintance. It can be a pleasure to be there for a friend or a loved one. It can be a pleasure to to serve a worthy cause. Okay, okay. Pleasure can be taken from many things, but is that what hedonism is about? Because in that case, it sounds pretty peachy. That's absolutely what hedonism advocates. Uh, sometimes, or or not. Kind of depends on the hedon that you ask. <laughs> well, that, that gets us nowhere. The world is a complicated place, and life is complex, but hedonism boils everything down to two things. Pleasure and pain. Pleasure is good, pain is bad. But some pain can be good, like the pain that is your body telling you to stop doing something because you're about to injure yourself. Sure, sure, and we we generally avoid those things. That's all hedonism is saying, to seek pleasure. But I also have to point out that it's seeking net pleasure, not pure, unadulterated pleasure. If you enjoy an alcoholic beverage, awesome. But if you drink excessively then you're not going to be a happy camper the next day. And if you eat good food, fantastic. But if you overeat, then you may get a stomach ache and it's not good for your health. So, net pleasure. 
So the whole idea of pleasure taken to excess is completely made up. By those who want to slander the good name of hedonism, and I will not stand for it. When you brought up other smaller, everyday pleasures, like enjoying a cup of coffee or going for a walk, hedonism is talking about that kind of pleasure as well? Everything in the world is either pleasure or pain. Some things may be more complex and involve some of both, like working hard at something might be painful or maybe just not fun, but eventually it results in more pleasure. So eventually you finish the project or you create whatever you're doing or you graduate. Mm -hmm. So that's still net pleasure. So if everything is pleasure and pain, hedonism just says the goal of life is to seek net pleasure. Not excessive, because that can cause more pain and only temporary pleasure, but overall. We already do and should consciously try to live a life of pleasure. Then how do you determine what's good and what's bad, which is pleasure and which is pain? It's a pretty simple philosophy. It just depends on you as an individual, not objective or anything. If you are some, say, absolute maniac and you like licorice, then have at it. Enjoy that pleasure. If you're a normal human being and can't stand the taste of licorice or stomach the thought of some people who like that vile, vile flavor, then just don't eat it. It's all subjective to you. One person's pain can be another person's pleasure. Why not? It's all about doing what pleases you. A movie that immediately comes to mind when I think about hedonism is The Wolf of Wall Street. From what I've just learned, that's not an accurate portrayal at all. (laughs) Oh, what a wild movie. That is... What can I say about that movie? That is the epitome of excess, for sure. Can't exactly discount it because Jordan Belfort and his crew are seeking pleasure. And for a long time, they're getting exactly what they want. Should we detail the movie? I don't know that we need to elaborate on much beside the overall plot. Oh, thank goodness. Overall plot. Jordan Belfort becomes a stockbroker and is obsessed with money and drugs. He doesn't care about his clients, but him and his married gang make millions and millions of dollars. Stacks on stacks, as some would say. Very tall stacks of stacks, yes. But he also does a bunch of illegal stuff, and eventually the FBI gets him. Those damn feds always trying to stop the fun. Hey, the feds are doing a public service and trying to stop his criminal misdoings. In the first three minutes of the movie, you see Jordan playing darts with dwarves. And then we see him getting a BJ in a Ferrari. Did did you just beat? Okay, alright, whatever. Uh, He does some... (laughs) adult activities in a Ferrari <laughs> and he does coke off the off of a lady of the night's body and then that that's all just within the opening three minutes <laughs> so you know what's not to like hmm. like all of it <laughs> then he <laughs> then he talks about making 49 million dollars in a year in one year and how that actually pissed him off because it was short of a million a week and then they show us his cars, his yachts, his horses, his vacation homes, and just so, so many drugs. Ugh, and he says his favorite drug is money. Yeah, no, all sounds pretty hedonistic to me. And see, I can't discount it because Jordan and his gang are having the time of their lives, living big and almost literally bathing in pleasure. <laughs> this is what they want. And they're happy living that sort of a life. 
for most of the movie, which I'm assuming spans some years, they're really enjoying it. So even though I don't like this movie being tied with hedonism, the comparison isn't exactly incorrect. But it is the commonly used definition of it and not the true understanding of hedonism. So it works or it doesn't work? At the risk of going against everything I've just said, I'll tell you about Aristippus. Aristippus was one of the ancient Greek philosophers, and he learned directly from Socrates. But he decided to go off on an entirely different branch from his teacher and created the Cyrenaic school of philosophy. He said, quote, The art of life lies in taking pleasures as they pass, and the keenest of pleasures are not intellectual, nor are they always moral. Definitely sounds like what most people talk about when they say hedonism. I know, I know. Socrates had said the greatest good in life is virtue, but the Cyrenaics said the supreme good in life is pleasure. And they go so far as to say that physical pleasures are better than intellectual pleasures. But it wasn't just because they wanted to have drunken orgies every night of the week. Right, right. They used to reserve Tuesdays for bingo. <laughs> I mean, maybe I can't deny that claim, but I can say that they believed that the only thing they can know for sure was what they experienced. As in, you can have some ice cream and know that you're experiencing a sweet sensation, but you can't determine with 100% certainty anything else. You can't determine the nature of of whatever is causing the sensation. You can't know that ice cream is sweet, just that you're experiencing sweet in that moment. How does that make any sense? If they weren't sensing sweet, then ate ice cream and sent sweet, isn't it logical that the ice cream is sweet? Usually sure, but epistemologically, it's a bit more complex. Like, different people can perceive senses differently. You and I may not see the same color when we look at something. And someone who's colorblind will definitely see it differently from us. The Kyrenaics are saying, we can't understand the nature of that color. We can only understand our sensory experience of it. Or like with the licorice then, some people can somehow get a pleasurable sensation from it and some don't. Most don't. That's all we can understand of licorice. <laughs> Good callback. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I have to defend Aristippus by saying that he did not advocate purely for pleasure either. He understood the concept of net pleasure and how some things cause more pain, even if there's instantaneous pleasure. Hmm. And, well, for instance, he said laws should be obeyed. Not because they're intrinsically good or right or moral or anything like that, but because you'll be in more pain if you break them, as in you might get locked up if you don't follow your society's rules. And maybe you'd rather not hang out with a particular friend when they want to, but similarly, if you'd rather keep that friend than lose him, to maintain a net positive balance for the pleasure column, sometimes you have to cave to social obligations. So there's a balance. And Aristippus says the wise person is in control of themselves rather than being slaves to pleasure. So it's still not what most people think of as hedonism. Aristippus was actually known for being super calm in every situation and finding joy everywhere, whether he was, say, dining with friends or even when actually he was a Persian prisoner for a while. He said, 
It is not abstinence from pleasure that is best, but mastery over them without being worsted. But at the end of the day, he says the supreme good is pleasure, and usually physical pleasure over intellectual pleasure. Okay, you know what? I'll give it to him. I may not agree about the physical pleasure, but he's a lot more fleshed out a character than he sounded at the beginning. It sounds like hedonism maybe does get a bit of a bad rep. And that's just the beginning, dude. <laughs> this was one school of thought in hedonism, but there were others. And the Kyrenaic school actually died out within a few generations and was replaced with Epicureanism. Oh, isn't Epicurus your favorite philosopher? Epicurus is absolutely my favorite philosopher. <laughs> I sense a burst of energy coming. Epicurus is who I think of when I think of hedonism. And he's just the best there ever was. I, I love this guy. Oh, tell us a little bit about him, you big nerd. I'll tell you a lot about him. <laughs> let's, let's just start with a little and see if we want to buy more. Epicurus said, do not spoil what you have by desiring what you have not. Remember that what you now have was once among the things you only hoped for. Nice. Liked it. Uh, Alright, maybe we will want more. He sounds like a very appreciative guy. And he's a hedonist. But this is the side of hedonism that people aren't familiar with. Epicurus was also an ancient Greek philosopher, but he was a little bit after Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. He Actually, he had some crossover with Aristotle, but none of that's important. <laughs> While most philosophers were concerned with concepts of truth and virtue or understanding the nature of reality, Epicurus had a different goal. His question was how to be happy. Wow, how is this guy not more famous? Being happy is all the rage these days. Who cares about the nature of reality? Most people just want to live a happy life. And so, Epicurus can be your guy, too. <laughs> the school that Plato started was called the Academy. Aristotle's was the Lyceum. Epicurus's one was called the Garden. Aristotle sounds pretentious, but Epicurus's sound cool. So quaint, so tranquil. Definitely sounds like a place to chill and find happiness. I'm glad he's grown on you. Like plants do, huh? In a garden? Uh, no. No, not like that. <laughs> <laughs> no. Epicurus's philosophy aimed to achieve happiness in a state called ataraxia, which meant freedom from worry. It's a very Hakuna Matata state of being. Tranquil, as you said. And Hakuna Matata is your life motto. This is starting to add up. I see why you like him so much. And the other side is Aponia. Or the absence of pain. And you get to the Hakuna Matata state by the absence of pain. Close, close. The two are related, but not quite linearly like that. You can think of it as Aponia is the absence of physical pain, and Ataraxia is the absence of mental pain. Hmm. The Epicureans believed the world is pleasure and pain, just like Aristippus. And the supreme goal is also pleasure. And they broke pleasure down into physical and mental pleasures too. The difference in this version of hedonism, however, is that they value mental pleasure over physical. Because physical pleasure only exists in the present moment, they argued. Whereas mental pleasure exists in the past, the present, and the future. 
Uh, clearly sounds like the superior version of pleasure, then. I, I like how that's phrased, that it exists in the past, present, and future all at once. That's cool. If you eat some luxurious, fancy food, it'll be delicious in the moment, and I guess you'll retain some memory of those amazing flavors, but it's mostly pleasure in the present. But a long-standing, deep friendship, that's a mental pleasure that's, well, I guess, long-standing. Oh, that's such a great way to put that. I love that. I, I I get what he's saying, but then how does how does Epicurus recommend we live our lives? How, how do we get that mental pleasure and ataraxia and upon aponia aponia? Yeah, I don't really know. But <laughs> great question. And for once, you'll be pleased to hear that there is an answer. <laughs> Epicurus is not going to leave you hanging. But first, I want to delve into these pleasures a bit more. We can look at pleasure as mental or physical, which we've already done, but there's also another framework we can use. Kinetic versus catastomatic pleasures. Okay, you're really going to have to explain those ones. We're bordering on that academically boring side of philosophy. Don't get hung up on the terminology. Kinetic means moving, and catastomatic means... Well, I'm not entirely sure, but think of it (laughs) as a constant, the opposite of moving. Kinetic pleasures are those that are the result of an action. So you eat and it tastes good. Or you go for a walk and enjoy the breeze. It could be an action that causes pleasure. Or, since the world is pleasure and pain, it could be an action that removes pain. So, say, getting a pee after holding it in for way too long is definitely a kinetic pleasure. Oh, the sweet, sweet release. Yes, so kinetic pleasure sounds like they line up with the physical pleasures. This is a different framework from physical and mental, so don't try to align it with that. Kinetic pleasures can be mental too, and Epicurus would say um, something like experiencing joy. That's a kinetic mental pleasure, since a feeling of joy is temporary, and it's caused by something, and it's not exactly a state of being. Then what makes this connect systematic pleasures are more a state of being? I'm not entirely sure what you just said, but I think you meant catastomatic. Yeah, yeah, catastrophic, yeah. <laughs> let's just let's just call it constant pleasure. <laughs> constant pleasure, yeah, is more of a state of being. It's a state of peace from the absence of distress. So, this is where ataraxia and aponia fit in. The absence of physical and mental pain. Exactly. If you're free from those disturbances, that's constant pleasure. And before you ask, yeah, it has physical and mental elements as well. Mental, I think, is easier to understand here. You're not burdened by stress or worry. But the physical side would be something like being comfortable, not being too cold, not being in pain from an injury, not being hungry or thirsty. If you don't want me to align physical, mental with kinetic and constant, can can I think of it as a b- box instead? Like a like a two by two table with mental and physical as the two columns, and kinetic and constant as the two rows. Yeah, yeah, no, I love that. I love that. That's not a that's not a bad way to think of it at all. Yes. And if you organize it that way, you can clearly see that ataraxia and aponia both fall under constant pleasure. Constant or a catastomatic pleasure, was seen as the higher pleasure to kinetic pleasure. 
And on the other axis, mental pleasure was seen as better than physical pleasure. And that gets us to a very handy conclusion, that catastomatic mental pleasure is the highest high. And that's exactly what the Epicureans taught. Ataraxia, or that state of Hakuna Matata, is the key to happiness. Is that really why you say that's your life motto? At first it sounds conveniently aloof and fun like the, like the party boy I am, but <laughs> it secretly has layers of depth. Like ogres. Just like ogres. And I assume party boy is spelled with an I. Two I's, actually. <laughs> where, where does the second I go? At the end of party? You disgust me more than I was aware. <laughs> but I'm digging this Epicurus fella. So, oh, man. So what about his recommendations for a happy life? <laughs> okay. So Aristippus said pleasure isn't always moral, but Epicurus thought that people should still strive to be ethical. Not to avoid external punishments from the government or the deities or whatever, but because being unethical would burden you with guilt, preventing that Hakuna Matata lifestyle you're seeking. That's how he squared pleasure and morality. And another massive burden on the mind that prevents us from reaching ataraxia is our fear of death. That's fair. Death haunts everyone, and you can't escape it. Death comes for us all, yes, but... Because of our narcissism or anxiety or assumption that death will be horrific and painful, something, something makes us terrified of death. And Epicurus has a simple way of thinking to basically say, don't worry about it, bro. <laughs> he wrote, death is nothing to us. When we exist, death is not. And when death exists, we are not. All sensation and consciousness ends with death, and therefore, in death, there is neither pleasure nor pain. The fear of death arises from the belief that in death, there is awareness. When we're alive, we're not dead. And when we're dead, we're not alive. Yeah, that sums it up. No, no, that, that doesn't help me at all. Please explain. <laughs> He's saying if you're afraid of death, you're not at peace. And yeah, we all buy that. But we're only afraid of death because we can't not think of ourselves as conscious beings. So we're accidentally thinking we're going to be thinking once we're dead. And yeah, for sure, that would suck. Mm. But that's not the case. We won't be. So there's no need to worry. Because while we're alive, we're not dead, so it doesn't matter. And when we're dead, we're not conscious, so it doesn't matter. Death shouldn't matter. Guessing he wasn't a religious guy, but yeah, no, that makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he definitely was not. But it was Epicurus himself who cured my fear of death. And this passage comes from his letter to Minicius. So if you're ever anxious about your impending death, go check out that letter. It's, it's pretty short. You can find it online. But my favorite part about Epicurus is the importance he placed on friendship. Ooh, I do love me some good friendship. What, 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 did, he, what did he say about that? He thought the best life possible, the way to achieve happiness was by surrounding yourself with your friends. 
Oh, that's so wholesome. I want to give Epicurus a hug now. <laughs> Epicurus looked around during his life in the 4th century BC, and we can observe the same by looking around our lives now in the 21st century CE. We can see that people are super nice and fun and loving with their friends, but often when it comes to romantic or sexual relationships, there's a lot more negative emotions like jealousy, possessiveness, and fighting. So though people seem to pursue romantic relationships and value that, Epicurus said, you need to surround yourself with your bros. Bros aren't jealous and possessive about their fellow bros. It's all just a good time. Ah, Epicurus, the true philosophy, bro. I assume that if you're a girlfriend, then it's with your sisses. But yeah, I'm picking up on what you're putting down about hedonism. It really does sound like... Bro is just a... Bro is like a state of being. It's just a non-gendered term. I'm a dude, you're a dude, she's a dude, because we're all dudes. I got it. Right. (laughs) it, It really does sound like this school of philosophy has been completely misunderstood. So the last thing I want to quote is another section from his letter to Meniceus. Epicurus wrote, When we say then that pleasure is the end and aim, we do not mean the pleasures of the prodigal or the pleasures of sensuality as we are understood to do by some through ignorance, prejudice, or willful misrepresentation. By pleasure, we mean the absence of pain in the body and of trouble in the soul. It is not an unbroken succession of drinking bouts and of merrymaking, not sexual love, not the enjoyment of the fish and other delicacies of a luxurious table which produces a pleasant life. It is sober reasoning. I'm assuming you disagree with the sober part of that reasoning, but... That's as good a summary as we're going to get. It's awesome. And it's from the man himself. When did he write that? 2,400 years ago-ish? That wisdom still makes perfect sense today. And that right there is the absolute beauty of philosophy. I've said this before, and I'm sure I'll say it again, but times change and technology evolves, but the nature of humanity is constant. I think I've got a good pop culture reference for your boy Epicurus. Nothing could ever live up to his greatness. How can you even try? It's a little movie called Inside Out. (laughs) The Disney movie about emotions? Ugh, you know how I feel about feelings. (laughs) Yeah, like you're above them. We know, Dr. Spock. But you're no robot. You have feelings, too. And I can relate Inside Out to Epicureanism. So hear me out. For those who haven't seen Inside Out, grow a soul. Hey, hey. No judgment. Not everyone's addicted to Disney, even if my motto is Hakuna Matata. (laughs) Fine. Fair enough. But it's fantastic. Go watch it. In this movie, you have a character who is literally the emotion of joy. I think there's a deeper meaning behind why joy isn't called happiness that ties into the theme of the movie, but also it's a kid's movie. Happiness was just too many syllables for little kids to say. I'm sure Catastomatic would have gone over great. That sounds like you just want to feel smarter than children. Hey now, that's a fact. I am smarter than children. (laughs) Good for you, buddy. (laughs) So, Inside Out is about a 12-year-old girl, Riley, who moves to a new town. And while she handles all the stressors of this new environment, we really see the perspective of her five main emotions who pilot her. Fear, disgust, 
anger, sadness, and crucially, joy. Joy is happiness is where you're going to tie it into Epicurus, I mean. I assume. You assume is right. What? Right, right. You assume right. Whatever. If you remember (laughs) the film, Joy is kind of the ringleader of this specific 12-year-old girl. We find out later in the film different people have different leader emotions, if you will. But Joy is in charge here, and golly gosh darn if she's not going to make things happy just all the gosh darn time. And most people would think Joy is the quote-unquote best emotion, but that actually sounds more like our first dude, Aristippus. Yes, that is a great point. That would be a terrifying Disney film. (laughs) Um, I'd say where the film actually goes Epicurean is that the crux of the film is when Joy is exclusively in charge, the little girl Riley they pilot is actually worse off. If Joy doesn't let fear take control from time to time, she could sustain great injury. Disgust keeps her from, like, eating stuff and getting poisoned. I guess anger fuels justice and righteousness. And crucially, even sadness plays a part, so... Like in Epicureanism, it's not purely pleasure or purely joy, but a balance that's best and leads to net pleasure. And I'd say the way sadness plays a part ties into Epicureanism, too. You're going to have to sell me pretty darn hard on that one. Sadness is literally the opposite concept of what of what we're professing up in here. Right. It's, it's not a one-for-one, one, but the movie uses sadness as more of an analog for empathy or that at least sadness helps us empathize with others, which I think speaks to the Epicurean idea of friendship and being able to help out your fellow humans in their times of need. That is a daring stretch, but but I'm here for it. Like with the bromanship of Epicureans' frat houses being able to pull people out of their sadness by temporarily dipping your toes in that field, yeah, that would get the job done. Greater potential overall happiness outcome. If you didn't help out your friends and this were immoral, you'd feel guilt and bam. Yeah, now you're even sadder than if you had just been sad a little bit. I am very glad you got where I was going with that because it makes a lot more sense in my head than when I'm speaking it out loud. (laughs) Your words are good words, though. I didn't think I made a lot of sense. But yes, I'll take it. I am particularly good at words. Some would say I have the best words. I, I'm i I'm also willing to bet that even the great and assumedly almost always happy Epicurus probably felt bummed at times, but that higher thinking is what leads to the overall feeling of happiness and fulfillment that Epicurus seems to be going for with his sober thought. I can hear you cringe at that word. I love it. But to be fair, and I don't know if this is specifically mentioned with Epicurus at all, I'm going to throw a personal anecdote at you, you know. came from you. Uh, I don't like it when you use my words against me. What terrible old uh, verbiage of mine will you drudge out from the deep recesses of our layered and storied history? It took you a bit to come up with, didn't it? I'm just doing it live. Uh, what, I, what I had in mind was just that conversation we had where sometimes, inexplicably, you'll just have a sad day. It's not like anything particularly sad happened, but that it just kind of feels like it's almost coming on because you haven't been sad in a while. Maybe it's quarterly, I don't know. I know. I could think of no worse thing from our 
made up history you could drudge up. <laughs> yep, I, I refute it. That never happened. Are you gaslighting me now? I need an adult. Where are the adults? <laughs> it never happened. Hit a nerve, I see. But I've been there too. I, I think a lot of people have. And that sadness is almost useful. I, I, I write some darn good sad boy poetry on those days, you know? <laughs> Maybe my guitar does notes better on those days. You feel me. Emo's still alive. <laughs> but if I did, it'd be very tough to get me to admit it. Yeah, no, should have expected that. I, I don't know if Epicurus gave any kind of value to sadness, but my point was to show how joy represents some of his ideas of balance and not excess in the movie Inside Out. And you're welcome that you didn't have to watch a kid's movie, you big growed up you. <laughs> and you're even more welcome that you didn't have to watch The Wolf of Wall Street. I most certainly got the better end of that deal, that's for sure. And I probably didn't need to watch past the first three minutes, but I sure did for you people. <laughs> well, I think that uh, I think that about wraps us up for this episode. This was absolutely fascinating for me. This makes me feel a lot less disgusted with being acquainted with a hedonism and a heathenist. Disgust? Oh, man. Strong words. Do I disgust you? Up until this episode, just, you know, absolutely all of the time. Mmm, I think I see. Ah, if you're, if, you're, if you're trying to make me experience sadness, that won't happen. <laughs> you got me. Well done. Oh, well. Maybe next time. Maybe never. Thanks for tuning in, and stay tuned in for our season finale next episode. Wholesome and Heathen do not endorse living a life of illegal and unceasing carnal pleasures in an effort to stave off the fear of an impending death. They do, however, endorse chilling with your bros, or personal equivalent to bros, to enjoy each other's company in harmony, learn from one another, and drink orange juice together. Heathen insists that's not a normal friendship activity, but Wholesome knows Heathen is wrong, and Wholesome writes these, so Orange Juice Party it is. Drop the blueprint to your dream friendship mansion, and send it on over to wholesomeandheathen.com.